Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen, but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there. Hey there, everyone. It is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm so glad that you are here with me today to dive into a topic that is very dear to me because I do feel like this is one of the things that nurses do that sets us apart, and that is our ability to provide compassionate and graceful end-of-life care. It really can be a very comforting thing for patients and families. So if you're a new nurse or a nursing student and you haven't worked a lot with dying patients, then this is the podcast for you. So um, it can be a very challenging role to take on. It's often very heartbreaking, but it can also be one of the most rewarding aspects of your career, especially if you work in an environment like the critical care environment where you see patients suffer so, so much before their death to be able to provide care that does not cause any suffering, any pain, any anxiety, just focusing on comfort and supporting families and supporting patients and helping them have that peaceful transition can be very rewarding. And you often feel like on those days that you have really acted as a nurse. I don't really know how to explain it until you take care of patients at that time. You might not be able to understand because I know that as students and as new nurses or maybe nurses that don't deal with uh, end of life, you know, we're so ingrained to get in there and fix things and fix patients and prevent problems and help them get well. But when that battle is being lost, we really shift our focus and nurses provide the most compassionate, beautiful end of life care. And it is something that I am and just so proud of my coworkers and my colleagues and my profession that it is something that we can do with, with such grace. So we'll be talking about that here today. So a lot of times uh, patients will be in the hospital and therapies aren't working, patients aren't responding, there's no more course of treatment in a lot of cases, or the patient is very elderly and doesn't want aggressive treatment. Lots of different reasons why patients and patients' families decide to change the goals of care to end-of-life care instead of pursuing um, aggressive medical treatment. So 
that difficult decision, and it is a very difficult decision, um, to cease life-saving efforts and transition the goals of care to comfort is one that, like I said, it's typically done when you're not seeing a lot of improvements or any improvements in the patient's condition, when improvements are not expected to occur, and when there's no possible quality of life remaining, or the patient maybe is experiencing such grave suffering due to all the medical treatments, all the therapies, what they've been through, that they decide that that's not how they want to die. They would rather die peacefully and not in pain and not under a lot of anxiety. So it is a very big decision. It is a very hard and difficult decision for family members to make. I've, from my experience, I would say when it's the patient themselves making that choice, sometimes the patient has an easier time with it than if a family member is the one that has to make the choice. So of course, that's going to be different for every situation, but it's just something that I've observed. The individual undergoing the therapies, undergoing the treatments, who's been battling an illness for a long time, they are the ones who are often relieved and they're just so tired um, that they'll make that decision. Most of the time, though, the patient is so sick that they're not involved in decision-making. Hopefully, they've let their wishes be known to their family, and that helps alleviate some of the pain of the decision for the family. But if you have a family who's going through this process of discussing these options, just be aware that it is a very stressful time for them, probably one of the most stressful times of their life. So have some compassion for them. Um, as well as compassion for your patient. So typically, decisions like this don't occur abruptly. They often will occur over days. Now, of course, there are instances where it may not occur slowly. It may occur quickly, especially in you know cases like trauma or devastating strokes and things like that. But typically, for the most part, it's an ongoing conversation so that families aren't overwhelmed with too much all at once. And it does give the medical team time to um, explore if there are any options. So usually um, there will be goals of care meetings set, and that is where these sorts of things will be discussed. So it's it's going to be, you know, um, included in the conversation of the patient's response to Therapies, assessment findings by the physician, by the nursing staff, uh, the physician's um, knowledge about the patient's future prognosis, um, a whole lot of things go into this conversation. And it's never the nurse that has this conversation. It's always the MD, though your assessment of the patient, providing that to the MD is very important data for them to have, very important information for them to have. So again, as the nurse, it's not in your scope of practice to discuss the patient's prognosis or their diagnosis, but you can state to the family um, and the patient, 
you know, the things that you observe, you know, I notice you're having more trouble breathing, or I notice your grandma's oxygen requirements have increased overnight, you know, things like that, things that you can observe, you can, of course, talk to the pa- the family about, but you have to leave the prognosis and those kinds of conversations to the medical team. Okay. So let's say, for example, that you have a patient with congestive heart failure, and they're really struggling to breathe. The physician has ordered some Lasix to help get that fluid off the patient's lungs, help them breathe better, and the patient's currently on 100% oxygen via a non-rebreather. So that's like one step below BiPAP or getting intubated. You give the patient the Lasix and it doesn't really have very much effect and you're not able to lower their oxygen level. You can certainly tell the family um, that, you know, you can certainly say things like, I've had to leave his oxygen at 100%, and this is why. But anything beyond that about the patient's prognosis would have to be from the MD. So I hope that makes sense to you guys. Okay. So what is the difference between comfort care and hospice? This comes up a lot. Um, In my limited knowledge, I will explain to you what I know. Um, Comfort care and hospice are both treatment options for patients who are in the process of dying. I would say that a hospice is one of those things that can generally be initiated sooner. Patients often go to hospice care Maybe they're not dying today, maybe they're not dying next week, but they have a fatal illness. And I want to say, I want to say hospice is like a sixth month if your prognosis is around six months or less. Don't quote me on that because what I mostly deal with in the inpatient setting is comfort care, which is mostly what we're going to talk about today. Comfort care typically refers to in-hospital care of a patient for whom that focus of care has shifted from attempting to cure them and solve all of their medical problems to keeping them comfortable and allowing a natural death. So hospice care, again, the knowledge that I have just from working a little bit with hospice in the hospital setting, it has the same goals, the goals of alleviating suffering, managing the patient's symptoms. But the nice thing about hospice care is that it brings with it a whole bunch of support from hospice care nurses, chaplains, social workers, in some cases, home health aides. They can get medical equipment to the home if the patient wants to be at home with their family. So when you're talking about when a family's asking you questions about options, a social worker is the best person for them to have this conversation with because they're very well versed in all of the options. But if they have, you know, basic questions about the difference, you can give them a little bit of information and direct them, you know, let them know that the social worker will be by and the social worker can help determine what they need and then the um there are palliative care teams in the hospital, possibly if not a social worker, then it would be a palliative care nurse that would come and speak to them about all of their options. So um, just knowing that they're a little bit different, but they both have the same goal to allow death with dignity and with comfort. So the focus for end-of-life care, like I said, is on comfort. So when patients are first, we say put on comfort care. That just simply means that the MD is changing their care from a you know, medical treatment 
uh, curative seeking treatment to comfort treatment. We call that being placed on comfort care. And there will be a whole order set of orders for that patient that are all related to comfort. So one of the most important things that you can do with this situation is communicate the process with the patient and the family. Most likely you'll be communicating it to the family. Very rarely have I transitioned a patient to comfort care who's been awake and talking to me. It has happened and very difficult. I will link to an article that I wrote when I was a new nurse and I was working with a patient who was dying and was not ready at all. And that was anguishing for me as a new nurse. And I can still hear her voice in my head. Um, most of the time, you'll be talking with family members, though, just be aware that the patient could be in a situation where they are actively deciding to stop treatment and just want to be peaceful. So most of the time, though, talking with family, and it's very important that they understand what to expect. They are in very unchartered territory. They will have a 100 questions that they don't even ask because it's just overwhelming to even think about all of the things to ask. So you just want to keep that in mind when maybe you're answering the same thing over and over again, or you know you don't want to make assumptions about what they might know because they might not know anything and have, again, many, many questions. So what I like to do is kind of talk them through the, the, the process, like, there's steps that we take and this is what what happens so that they're not, mm, I guess, not surprised by anything. N knowing things helps decrease patients, uh, family members' anxiety about the unknown, definitely. So let's say the patient's on a ventilator and they're on, you know, a whole bunch of levofed and um, phenylephrine and, and all these things, dopamine to keep their blood pressure up, whatever it is. So you want to let the family know that you will be turning off the life-sustaining medications. You will be removing the ventilator, if the patient's on a ventilator, and removing any supplemental oxygen. Sometimes the MD will write um, to extubate the patient, but put them on a little bit of oxygen. Usually, though, it's just to uh, room air. So you want to let them know the steps that will happen. Typically, um, what we do is patients going on to comfort care will be placed on a continuous low-dose morphine infusion. And that is given to um, provide comfort, <laughs> alleviate pain. And it also helps, I believe it helps dilate the airways a little bit. It helps to reduce feelings of air hunger. That much I do know. And that reduction in that air hunger feeling also helps reduce anxiety in the patient. So typically the process at the facilities where I've worked has been to start the 
low-dose morphine infusion, and you titrate that to patient um, comfort based off their respiratory rate and their vital signs and things like that. And you'll have set parameters ordered by the MD. And then once the morphine infusion is going, then turn the medications off and then extubate. You don't want to extubate a patient and then start the morphine infusion because they're going to be anxious. They're going to be um, having that air hunger. If they're in pain, it's just going to be exacerbated by the anxiety and the you know the trouble breathing. So get them comfortable first before removing things. And your facility where you are may have a very specific protocol for how these things are done. I'm just telling you my experience and how it's typically been undertaken. Um, so as for suffering, one of the first things families will probably ask is if their family member will suffer. And I just always promise them that they will be comfortable. You know, I will do my best to make sure they're not having pain. And we do that by, again, monitoring the respiratory rate and their heart rate and titrating that morphine infusion um, so that they're getting a safe dose, but they're getting um, some pain alleviation as well. Sometimes um, patients will need PRN medication as well every now and then for different things. Um, maybe an anxiolytic once in a while might be needed. Um, other medications that a patient might have if they're on comfort care is an anticholinergic. Those are typically um, used to prevent excess oral secretions just to prevent that um, you know, secretions occluding the throat. It's very uncomfortable um, for families to hear that wet sound with the breath. So, um, and we want to just help the patient keep their airway clear for their comfort. So we use the anticholinergic for that. There will often be um, orders to not do painful things. So a lot of the things will be completely uh, taken off, like discontinued blood checks, lab draws. We're not going to do any of that stuff. The MD will often, I mean, I think in our order set, it's um, no deep suctioning because that's uncomfortable. So you're not going to be doing things that cause discomfort for the patient. Um, things like that. So you're, you're totally shifting how you think about nursing care when you're taking care of a patient who is actively dying. And, you know, you might, it might be hard to wrap your brain around that at first, but you'll soon see as you take care of these patients, how much comfort and care you can provide to people in their really their greatest, greatest time of need. So another um, another question that you want to, or another thing you want to let the families know about is that patients' breathing patterns um, may change as they go through the dying process. Every patient is different, but you want to let them know that they may hear that death rattle sound. I would probably Google another term for that before I shared it, um, but they may hear like some noisy breathing and that is very normal. Um, obviously, I don't call it a death rattle to my families. I'm saying that to you guys. Um, I might say something like, you may hear a sound that seems as though they have something in the back of their throat. This is common. This is just part of the process. His pain will be managed and you can see um, from his vital signs that he won't be in any distress. So something along those lines. 
Um, and then you always want to let the family know if you ever think that your loved one is in any distress, please let me know right away so that I can, you know, maybe give the anxiolytic or maybe the morphine infusion needs to be titrated a little bit. So those sorts of things you want to communicate freely with your family about. Another big question that family members will ask is how long, how long do you think he'll have once we turn, you know, turn off the medicine or remove the ventilator? And it it really depends on the patient. Um, If you've got someone who was on 100% FiO2 on the ventilator, then when you remove that ventilator, they're probably going to go pretty quickly. If you've got a patient on max dose of multiple vasopressors, then it's going to be a rapid decline when you take those things off. And I'm speaking in general, you know, there's always things that happen that are outside the norm, but I would say those would be two situations where you could anticipate the patient not lasting terribly long without that intense life support treatment. Um, In other cases that are less severe, I've seen patients hang out with O2 sats in the low 80s for days. Um, So that can happen. Um, It really, really just depends. Um, I try to give family members an idea of what to expect, but I always say everyone is different. Um, I can let you know when, from my observation, I feel like he's close um, so that you're prepared. So there's that. And then some patients, uh, family members, don't opt to stay. Not everybody is equipped to be present when a family member dies. Maybe they don't have the um, that kind of relationship with the individual. Maybe they had a really tumultuous relationship, um, but they you know, were there for the medical decisions that needed to be done, and they don't feel comfortable staying. Or maybe they're so close to this individual that they emotionally can't handle it, or whatever. I don't judge people for staying or not staying. I promise them that nobody in our um, ICU ever dies alone. So if they can't be there, one of the nurses, if not me, somebody else will be in there with them when it is their time. So I always promise them that. And I've always kept that promise. So when you are looking at a patient and you're watching on the monitor, typically when a patient's on comfort care, and you know, you've got the family in the room, I give them as much space as I possibly can. And I only go in when it is absolutely necessary in order to um, do whatever it is that I need to do for the patient. But I want them to have this uninterrupted time with each other and with their loved one. So we'll be watching the monitor from at the nurse's station and you'll get used to seeing typical things that will show you that your patient is getting close, you know, their oxygen levels will decrease, the respiratory rate may get really fast, then very, very, very slow. Um, You'll start seeing EKG changes, you'll see ectopy, you'll see dysrhythmias, you'll see the QRS typically just get wider and wider and wider until it's just flattened out into asystole. And of course, with that, you'll see the blood pressures dropping. So different signs that you can watch for. Um, Sometimes the patient will just brady down and their heart rate will be 110 and then it's 40. And then, you know, so if you've got to let family know that it's close, you'll learn what signs and then you can alert them and say, I think he's going now. And then they'll you know, do what they need to do to prepare for that. 
So if your patient is intubated and you, um, we typically will offer, fam- we'll typically have the family leave the room when we take the ET tube out because it's just kind of upsetting for, for someone to see that. And um, so while, um, while they're out um, of the room for that brief minute, I try to get the patient looking as as good as I possibly can. I make sure the patient is clean. I make sure they are in a fresh gown. I make sure the linens on the bed are fresh and and very nicely, you know, draped and, and looking good. I place arms on top of the blankets so that family members can hold the patient's hands. Uh, and we'll do this before we take the ET tube out because the patient may not last that long after the ET tube is out. So we'll do all of this, um, making them look very peaceful, very dignified is very important. So we'll do all of that. I get out as much unnecessary medical equipment from the room as I can. I turn the monitor off in the room, but it'll stay on out at the nurse's station, get any unnecessary tubes, lines, monitoring equipment, anything that I can to get out of that room to make the room seem less like a hospital and a more peaceful environment that I can. Um, so that's very important. And then we get um, get out of the way, basically, and let the family have just as much access to their loved one as they want. Um, so that's just kind of the routine that I follow that has helped. And then once the patient dies, then it's time for postmortem care. And you guys learned about this in... I want to say first semester, first or second semester, most likely, uh, you learned about postmortem care. So one of the things um, you want to find out is if the family is going to leave right after the patient dies or if they're going to have other people come. Different families, different cultures do different things. So never make an assumption. And um, if just if you didn't get a chance to make sure the patient was um, fresh and clean and everything tidy, if you can take a moment to do that here, that is very important. You want the patient to look clean, peaceful, all of that. Um, If the room is a mess, tidy up the room. Do whatever you can to just make a nice environment for, for the family and for the patient. And some cultures will want to do postmortem care with you or be involved in some way. So just make sure that you're aware of that. Okay. So, um, and then your hospital policies may dictate what they can and cannot do. So just be aware that that could come up. So once the family leaves um, and they've said their last goodbyes, you're faced with the this task of continuing to care for your patient by providing that very compassionate postmortem care. So when I'm getting my patients ready to go down to the morgue, I talk to them. Sometimes I play music. I handle them very gently. I speak to them as though they are still with us. Um, It's not a time to be in the room with your coworkers, cracking jokes, making fun of things, um, sharing unit gossip, disparaging anyone or anything. You're just, it's a solemn thing and you're serious and you're kind. Okay. The body that you're placing into that white morgue zippered bag was a vehicle for someone to live their life. And it was the greatest gift they ever, ever received. And you should treat it as such. So compassionate postmortem care is very, very important. 
In most cases, you will remove uh, tubes, you'll remove lines, you'll remove Foley catheters, NG tubes, all of that. Um, if your hospital policy is different, of course, follow that policy. I'm just telling you what, what typically we do. If it is a case that will be going to the coroner, then everything stays in place. So just make sure you know hospital policy before you start taking anything out. Um, then you'll place identifying... Um, uh, identifying information on the patient, on the outside of the bag, and on any of the patient's belongings. And then at my hospital, we have these special gurneys that are all completely covered so that we can go through the hallway because there's no like back door down to the morgue. We still have to go through the hallway, but it's covered in such a way that if you didn't really know, you might not know, but it's still a covered gurney going down the hallway. So um, I want to share with you one, one little thing that I've done for patients. And it was, I got the biggest hug from my patient's daughter when I did this. So I had this, this patient who had died and it was very hard, you know, very sad for them. They were very close family. And so I took his EKG tracing from before he passed and, um, cut it out into a strip because ours printed out on a whole, you know, eight by 11 sheet of paper. And I just cut it out into a little strip and then rolled it up and put it into a um, blood draw vial. And I, I took the stickers off the blood draw vial and I gave one to the, to the daughter and one to the mother. And she just grabbed me and said, thank you. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it was just a small thing for me to do, but it meant the absolute world to her. So just thinking of ways that you can help provide comfort to people at times like this. And, and you'll see what an impact that compassionate nursing care can have on patients and their families. So that's enough talk about all of that. It was kind of a sad episode, but it really is. I'm very passionate about providing really excellent, um, peaceful end-of-life care for my patients, and, and I hope that you will be as well. I talk to all of my patients, whether they're uh, still with me or not. Um, hearing is, they say, that's the last sense to go. So always talking to your patient, explaining what you're doing, reassuring them, um, playing music, wh whatever. So just keep that in mind, especially when you're in the room with your coworkers, always treating them with the highest dignity, your patients, as they say goodbye to this world. So that is going to wrap us up for today. Next week, I will be back here and we'll be talking about taking care of patients after thyroidectomy. So I'll see you back here again next week. Have a great week, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.